The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Hey, welcome to Genesis. My name is Michael. Glad you guys are here. You can, if you feel like standing tonight, you could do that. You could be different, dare to be different and stand the whole time. Hey, we're going to jump right in. We have been uh, walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, since last November, actually. And uh, we've got a few more Sundays left in June, and uh, we're going to bust out the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So tonight we're in chapter 11, and I have no idea how far we're actually going to get, but uh, hopefully at least through 11, maybe we'll venture into uh, chapter 12 as well. Um, Two-thirds of Mark's Gospel has been focused on uh, Jesus, uh, who Jesus is. He identifies Jesus real quick right away that uh, Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, and that Jesus is God's son. And so for the better part of three years, uh, we've seen Jesus Christ, the son of God, who he is, what he has been saying, what he has been doing. We've heard his teachings. We've seen his miracles. Uh, we've seen the crowds that he has chosen to spend time with and hang out with. Crowds that he did not choose time uh, to invest in and hang out with. So for two-thirds of Mark's gospel, Mark has been painting a portrait or a picture of this is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And he is God's Son. Now we have a third of Mark's gospel to go. And a third, two-thirds is given over to three years of the life of Jesus. The last third of Mark's gospel is given over to his last week. It's an amazing uh, proportion uh, that Mark gives to walking us through the last week of Jesus's life. Because if you're familiar with Good Friday, with Easter, you may have heard the terminology before, the Passion. Well, this is Passion Week. I know we're not celebrating Easter uh, next Sunday or anything like that, but the final third of Mark's gospel is given over towards the passion, meaning the suffering of Jesus. And so the text we're working in tonight uh, starts in Mark chapter 11. And um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. By the way, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, If you're here for the very first time, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm not sure how you found us, but I'm glad you did. And I'm excited uh, for you to be here because I'm excited for what God's doing in this community. And I'm excited for you uh, to be part of all that God has in mind for you. So, Father God, we are uh, thankful for the opportunity uh, to gather as a community. And, uh, God, more than anything, we're just, give thanks for you. You are great, and uh, we are not. You are good and compassionate and kind and merciful. Uh, God, I give thanks for uh, Mark and how he has uh, just faithfully been walking us through uh, three years of the life and the ministry and the teachings and the miracles uh, of Jesus. God, I pray that uh, tonight as we would venture into the final week of Jesus' life uh, here on earth, that we would have just great understanding, that we would have great insight. It's amazing that the final week has just all been leading up towards uh, the mission and the message uh, that Jesus was faithful to preach and to proclaim, that he came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life. He came to go to a cross to be brutally murdered, to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. So, Father, open our eyes tonight to uh, the text that we're in. And, God, more than anything, just give us hearts to receive uh, everything that you have for us in this place. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to go through uh, a lot of Scripture tonight. Uh, so I apologize if this seems like I'm going really fast, but um, that's all right. I've been going slow for 26 weeks, so now it's time to catch up. Um, Jesus, this is known as triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus has been headed towards Jerusalem, and now he is uh, entering into Jerusalem. Amazing what happens here in these first uh, 11 verses is the people are incredibly excited about Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Jesus demonstrates some supernatural knowledge the very first part of Mark uh, chapter 11, he tells his disciples, uh, hey, I want you to go get this certain colt. Take the colt. When the owners come and tell you why you're taking that colt, just tell them Jesus needs it. 
And they'll be like, cool, okay, go ahead and take it. That's what they do. The disciples go, and uh, they see this cult exactly where uh, Jesus told them it would be. This is like the passage like shoplifters like to use. Like when they go and they take something, and the owner's like, what are you doing? Oh, Jesus told me that this was here for me. That's not what's happening here at all. So when they go, they find uh, the cult just as they said. The people come and say, hey, what are you doing? And Jesus says, or they gave the response that Jesus told them. The Lord needs this. And so they come back. And as soon as they come back with this cult, uh, Jesus sits atop the cult, first person ever to do that, and he heads into Jerusalem. As he heads into the city, he is, it's fanfare. People are chanting and people are screaming, and they are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, the coming of uh, the son of David. I felt like screaming right there what it would have sounded like, but uh, I won't do that this week. Um, They are screaming at the top of their lungs, Hosanna. And what they're saying when they're crying out, Hosanna, is save us. What's amazing as you think about that chant within a very short time frame, within a, a span of a week, they will go from crying and shouting, save us, to crucify that Savior. Kill him. The same crowds that are chanting and walking him into the city in a few short days are going to be chanting uh, for his death. How is it possible that in the span of just one week, we can go from save us, save us, to crucify him? kill him, put him on the cross. These people utterly were confused. I have a feeling as they were seeing Jesus come into town, they're chanting, save us, but they're kind of looking around thinking, like, where's the military? Like, where's your entourage of, like, where's your army? Like, they must have been a little bit confused as they see Jesus coming into town with some fishermen and some tax collectors. They were chanting, save us, save us. We want a different kingdom here on earth. We don't want Caesar as our king. We want you as our king. We don't want to be politically oppressed uh, as we currently are. And so save us. So they're utterly confused. So when it comes time to confess for a savior, they're okay to chant crucify because he's not the kind of savior that they ultimately wanted question that I've been thinking about is, what do we need saving from? If they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save us with some passion, what is it that you and I need to be saying? What is it that ultimately we need to be saved from? Now, most of us, when we cry that out to God, save us, it's typically save us from this circumstance or save us from this situation. Very rarely is it the prayer of our heart that says, save me from myself. I am utterly undone. I am utterly selfish, self-centered. I can't get over myself. Save me from my sin. Save me from me. That's what we need to be crying out when we cry out to Jesus. Jesus, save me from me. Save me from my sin. Not just this situation at work or this relationship or whatever the situation, circumstance might be. It's crying out to Jesus, Jesus, would you save me from myself? Uh, Jesus goes on, and interesting, at the the very end of uh, Mark, uh, the section where Jesus is triumphal entry into Jerusalem, says, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He comes in on the first day. This is Passover week, by the way, which means hundreds of thousands of people will come into the city to celebrate God's deliverance of the nation of Israel uh, from the bondage slavery of Egypt. So there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of passion and joy. This is what Jesus is coming in, entering into. He comes to that city the first night. He takes a look around. He surveys the scene. He sees the temple, what's going on in there, and he says there will be another day, and he comes back the next day. Martin Luther, he was a great reformer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, 
But uh, he was the one who had some issues with the Catholic Church back around 1500. Martin Luther was a man who was really not that afraid to say, to call it like it was. This was a letter that he sent to the Pope, uh, Pope Leo X, on September 6, 1520. It says this, The Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. I mean, I, I understand what he's saying. Like, there's, there's no room for like, well, what does he really mean? Like, tell me how you really feel, Martin Luther. He puts it out there. This is Jesus. Jesus is not afraid to say what needs to be said. So when he shows up the next day in the temple, in our modern day, people would say he went postal. Like he just lost it. When he walked in and saw what people were doing in the temple, Jesus just lost it. He's flipping over tables. But one of the things that I want us to catch and why I shared the Martin Luther quote is, Jesus saw what God had intended for something so good and how man had turned it into something so evil. And Jesus was not afraid to call people out on what they needed to be called out on. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not in the season for figs. I warn you in advance, there is a tree that will be harmed in this story. Verse 14, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. Now, it seems odd to maybe curse a fig tree for not having fruit uh, when it's out of season, but I'm going to explain the fig tree here uh, in a few minutes. Uh, the point of this fig tree, real quick, is that it's, a, it's symbolic of what Jesus is about to do in the temple. The temple was supposed to be a people, a community that was bearing fruit, and it was not. And so this is uh, foreshadowing, if you will, uh, what Jesus is about to do in the temple. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, heard this, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. As I said, Jesus makes a pretty big scene here. Uh, I don't want you to think he's like foaming at the mouth, freaking out, like just totally gone berserk. If he had totally lost it that way, the temple police, even the Roman guards would have come in uh, to stop him from what he was doing. This was a righteous indignation when Jesus walks into God's house, the temple, and he sees what people are doing. He starts flipping over tables, telling people they can't come in, can't do what they're doing. Now, most people, when they they see this passage, uh, they jump immediately to, well, that's because people were, you know, selling and, and trading in the temple, and they were trying to make a buck, and Uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I've heard people use this text as, that's why churches, they can't sell anything in church. Like, if you're going to offer books, you shouldn't sell books because clearly Jesus uh, did not like that. And if he walked in and he saw a book table, he would just go berserk. Has nothing to do with that actually at all. Jesus, who did he kick out? Buyers and sellers. This is not a statement that Jesus is making about like bad business taking place in the marketplace. So the question is, why is Jesus so upset? 
Why does he walk in and do what he does? He quotes a passage, an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 56. 56 verse 7 says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God never intended the temple just to be some shrine that people would come and visit once a year, make pilgrimage to, and worship this almighty temple, this almighty building. And as you read through Isaiah 56, the the passage that Jesus is quoting, Isaiah 56 talks very clearly about God's heart and God's promise of salvation to a people who thought that God was not interested in saving them. As you walk through Isaiah 56, the foreigner who was rejected or an alien, God says, no, salvation for the foreigner. The eunuch, someone who would not even been allowed in the temple, salvation for them. The outcasts of Israel, salvation for them. This entire passage of Isaiah 56 is communicating God desires salvation of all men. And what is now taking place, and if you look at Jesus' entire ministry, he's ministering to people that no one wanted anything to do with. The outcast, the sick, the demon-possessed. Jesus, for three years, was ministering to a people that, by and large, thought, God does not care about me because look at my condition. I'm sick. I have a disease. I'm in the caste system. I'm as low as you get. God doesn't care about me. Jesus' entire ministry for three years was to go to that people group and say, God does care, and there is salvation for you. That was the heart of what God was doing here in the temple, but they had made it into something completely different. Jesus actually refers to the temple as a den of robbers. This is another Old Testament quote from Jeremiah 7. It says this, Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The great picture of what Jesus did the night before he went into the temple. He was watching. He observed what people were doing in God's house. And the next day, he came back to clean house. Now, I already said this, but the reference to den of robbers has nothing to do with trading and selling taking place inside the temple. It has everything to do with Jesus denouncing false security that people were getting from the sacrificial system. Let me ask you a very simple question. Where do robbers rob from? If you're a robber, where do you rob from? You don't rob from your own den, do you? A den, Jesus refers to the temple as you've turned it into a den of robbers. They don't rob inside their own den. They rob outside of it. What Jesus is saying, you've turned this into a den of robbers. A den, if you commit a crime and you go back to your den, that's your safe place. That's your refuge a place where you can have security. You go and you commit a crime, and then you come back to this place called your den. It's safe. No one's going to catch you there. It's your place of refuge. What was happening in the temple is people had this idea, and it was coming from the leadership, the priests, the teachers, the elders. It didn't matter how you lived outside You could rob, you could cheat, you could be a a thief, an adulterer, a murderer. It doesn't matter how you live your life out here because your den, your place of refuge is in here in the temple. Meaning that if you come and do your thing in the temple, make your sacrifice, all will be well, all will be covered. And Jesus is saying, no, you are offering false security for people. The message was, it doesn't matter how you live your life. Just as long as you come in and check in once uh, once a year, and you'll be covered. A modern-day equivalent, what would that be for us? It's us who say, it doesn't really matter how I live my life when I leave here on Sunday evenings. It doesn't matter if I give any thought to God. It doesn't matter if I 
have a, a heart that is desires to follow Jesus, to repent of sin, it doesn't matter how I live out there. As long as I come in here, I check in once a week, I, I'll be okay. Somehow God will be pleased with that. This is as close to a modern-day equivalent as I can give you. We come in, we check our time card, we do our thing, we sing our songs, you listen to me rant and rave for an hour, you celebrate communion, and then you go and you just do your own thing. That this is a safe place where we can come and hide together, so to speak, with no thought of what we actually, how we live uh, outside. What would Jesus say to us? It was very clear what he said to them. You've turned this into a den of robbers. What would Jesus say to us, to this community? I'm not talking about like Church Universal or the church down the street. To this church, to you, to me, to this community. The reality is there might be some, if not a lot, if not many, who have that mentality. I will live my life regardless, however I want to live it, but I'll come to church once a week just so I feel a little bit better about myself. And hopefully God will be pleased. Well, at least he went to church. If that's you, if that's many of us, that's all of us, the message is repent. God cares about not only what happens in here in this space, God cares about what happens in the world that you live in. He cares about who you are as a person, the thoughts you have, the interactions you have, the reactions you have, your behaviors, your attitudes. It matters to God that this is not just some safe place to come so you feel better about yourself. It matters to God how we live out there. And that what we do in here, every week we get to pray back together, um, myself and the worship team, and it's just awesome. We get to worship God, love God every single day, every single week, 24-7. But we only get to do this once a week, where we can come together in the context of community and make a big deal about Jesus together. So what happens in here matters, but the message is what happens out there, how you live your life matters as well. Go back to the fig tree. It was total false advertising. Jesus went up to this thing. It was in full leaf. He turns the leaf over and sees there's no fig. There's no fruit. Make the comparison to the temple. Total false advertising. It had the appearance of doing one thing, but when one looked close, There was no fruit. Jesus' message to this fig tree, Jesus' message to this temple is not one of, you know, quick, let's fix this. It was one of destruction. That fig tree died. The temple would be destroyed. This is a very serious, intense message that Jesus is giving. So what happens if you examine where you are tonight, and you realize, you know what? It's just all leaves. It's just all leaves. If you were to look closely at your life, you have the appearance, you have the leaves, as it were, but if you look beyond that, there's just nothing there. The message to you, to all of us, would be to repent from false advertising, to repent from just being leaves, being show. No depth of person, no depth of character, no depth of following Jesus. This is, a, I realize, a very intense, serious message that Jesus is giving, but I love you enough to say, you know what? We can't fake God out. This can't be a safe place where we come and just feel good about ourselves. How you live Monday through Sunday evening at 6 o'clock matters to God. It matters a lot. Let us not let this place become a safe haven 
where we just get offered false security that I punch my time card, I'm somehow covered, I'm somehow good. It, that doesn't cut it with God. Jesus goes on and says people, you know, were amazed at what Jesus was teaching, but the chief priests in verse 18 and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. Why? This is not the first time they say they're looking for a way to kill Jesus because they know that Jesus is talking to them. And rather than repent, they say, you know what? It would just be easier to get rid of him. So let's plan and plot a way where we can kill him. Question, what became of the cursed fig tree? Verse 20, 21. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. By the way, when it says withered from the roots, this is making clear, this is an amazing miracle that has taken place. For a tree to be in full bloom in terms of full leaf, and the in the span of 24 hours, less than 24 hours, for it to be completely withered, completely dead. This is an amazing miracle, and it's the only negative miracle in the entire gospel of Mark. Fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It's, I, I just picture, I love Peter. It's like, oh my gosh, it worked. Like, I remember, Jesus, what you said. I can't believe it actually worked. I've seen dead people come back to life. Heck, I even walked on the water. But this tree, that's amazing. Jesus, look, it's phenomenal. This tree, it's dead. And I can just picture Jesus looking at Peter. Ah, Peter, I love you. (laughs) He responds to Peter in um, verse 22, a very powerful verse. Peter, have faith in God. Mark 11, verse 22. Have faith in God. Jesus couples faith in God with what he sees in this tree that had previously been alive, but now is dead. When Peter looks and be like, Jesus, this is phenomenal. Jesus just looks at him and says, Peter, have faith in God. God. What Jesus is teaching Peter, the disciples, and us as well is that a life based on appearances is not really much of a life. It's certainly not the life of one who's going to follow Jesus. Like just the leaves, but nothing else there. What Jesus is about to teach Peter, the disciples, consequently us, is it is about faith, but not just faith. Anyone can have faith. We all have faith in here. I don't, it doesn't matter, atheist, agnostic, whatever background, you are a person who has faith. You demonstrate faith every single moment, every single day. It is just a question of who or what is the object of your faith. I hear it so much. Oh, just have faith. Really, in what? What is the subject? What is the object of your faith? This is a question for you, for us. It's easy to say, have faith. Okay, I have it. It's totally another thing to say, have faith in God. Jesus gives a over-the-top example. This is an example that is often very misunderstood. Jesus says, Peter, in this follow-up, to have faith in God, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now, this is the part where I've heard other preachers just, they love to say, what's your mountain? Like, if you just believe enough, you can move that mountain. So what's your mountain? Maybe your mountain's your marriage. Maybe your mountain's your debt. Maybe your mountain's your work. Really? I somehow have a hard time thinking that this is, first of all, this is a weird example. Jesus just happens to look around and be like, say, for example, Peter, you look at that mountain over there. If you just talk to it, tell him to mountain speak, mountain pick yourself up and throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done for you. This is not the part where 
our message, the message to us is, if you would just believe harder, if you would just have faith, then those mountains in your life will be moved by, by your miraculous faith. The two big problems with that is, one, is spiritual constipation. This is not a, a theological term, but it's the person who's just, if I just believe, if I just believe, I'll believe harder and I'll believe harder, and they work themselves up into such a tizzy, I got to believe, I got to believe, I got to believe, and when something's not happening, oh, I, I guess I just don't have enough belief. I get, I'll believe harder, I'll, I'll, harder, harder, harder. No, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. And the second problem is ultimately, it's just not what Jesus is talking about. Notice that Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, this is something that is um, very different, and I've given you some examples of that, what that mountain might be. Most would agree Jesus is looking at the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. He's looking at that mountain. The only two times in Mark's gospel where something is referred to as cast into the sea is what? Remember back in Mark chapter 5, a bunch of demons came out and said, don't destroy us, so send us into that swine, to the herd of pigs. As soon as they entered, they were cast, they were thrown into the sea. The second example where someone, that language cast into the sea is used, guess where? When Jesus looks at them and says, if anyone ever leads anyone astray from God, becomes a stumbling block, becomes a hindrance for someone coming to know the reality of who God is. It would be better for that person, guess what? To have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea. Jesus is making a statement here about what is going to happen to the Temple Mount. That it would be thrown down and cast into the sea. In people's minds, it would be impossible. You have to understand in this culture, the temple was everything. You wanted to connect with God, the temple. If you wanted to have a right relationship with God, the temple. If you wanted to do anything spiritual, it all took place at the temple. That was the heartbeat, the focal point. So if you were going to tell someone that no longer would a temple, a building, a place, a location be the place where humanity can connect with God, they'd say, no way. It's not possible. It's been this way for 1,000 years. But Jesus is saying, this temple, this mount, will be cast into the sea. It will no longer be the focal point of your faith. Why? Because Jesus will be the focal point of our faith. Our faith will not be found in a building, a place, a structure, a sacrificial system. It will be found in the person of Jesus. He goes on, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. This is Jesus saying, you know what? This new way, the way of Jesus, is not going to be driven by temple and sacrifices. It's going to be driven by faith. It's going to be driven by grace, by God's grace, receiving God's grace. It's going to be driven by prayer that we would be people connecting with God. And it's going to be driven by forgiveness. Faith, grace, prayer, and forgiveness. Now, Jesus does make clear that there will be something that will kill faith. And it's something called doubt. The very thing that will crush, paralyze, debilitate faith will be doubt. And I wanted to ask this question. What is it that causes doubt? 
How many people in here have ever struggled with doubt? Now, if you're wondering, like, should I raise your hand? You should because you're struggling with doubt right now. It's safe to say that at some point in your existence, doubt has been a reality. And I would venture to say for many of us, doubt is a very paralyzing reality in our lives. As I've sat with this question of why is it that we doubt, I've tried just to narrow it down as best I can. I feel, I sense, and the scripture teaches, it really comes down to an issue of trust. It's very difficult to have faith in someone when you don't trust them. So my follow-up question is, what is, it that, what is it about God, about Jesus, that you have a hard time trusting? What is it about God, his character, how he has revealed himself to us that causes pause in you? Can I really trust him? Is it maybe he's too indifferent? He just doesn't care. He's too far removed. He's too distant. He's too angry. What is it about God that causes you to question, can I really trust God? Because ultimately, where there is trust, there will be faith. If you want to know why is it that I struggle with doubt and and being paralyzed by doubt, it comes to an issue of trust. The greater risk, by the way, is not trusting God, trusting specifically trusting Jesus. Actually, the greater risk would be not trusting him. Trusting in someone or something other than God. What is it about God that renders him not worthy of trust? One of my favorite passages in Romans says this. What then shall we say in response to this? And in response to this is the amazing work that God has done in bringing salvation to humanity. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? If God who loved you, loved me enough to send his son into humanity to live a perfect life, to die a very brutal death as the penalty, as the atonement for our sin, if God did not withhold his own son from us, what honestly is it about God that causes you to say, I just don't know if I can trust him? If you're in that place tonight, you will never move to the point of faith unless you come to the place of, I can trust. And I can't make decisions for you, obviously. I can only encourage and exhort you. There is nothing in God, in his character, in what he has revealed to us in Scripture and revealed to us by his Spirit, by his Son, that is not worthy of me saying, my trust is in him. The alternative for me is to trust in myself. Now, I know none of you know me as well as I know me. I don't want to trust me because I know me. I know how sinful, wicked, rebellious I can be. I know how inconsistent, inconsiderate I can be. I have no desire to trust in myself. How about you? Would you honestly rather trust the salvation of your soul, your life now, as well as life in eternity, would you want to really leave it up to you? Jesus says that doubt will ultimately crush faith. And then he goes on to say something very powerful as well, is unforgiveness will not only hinder prayer, but it will also hinder us from receiving God's grace. He says this, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Have you ever tried praying when your heart was like just filled with anger, bitterness, rage, hurt, unforgiveness towards someone? You ever tried praying like in all sincerity? Like how did that go for you? 
It's really hard trying to connect with God when your heart is just hard as a rock. It's really hard praying prayers to God who is good, compassionate, merciful, and forgiving when you are just riddled with hate towards someone for whatever they've done to you. It, it just doesn't work. And Jesus makes that clear. Doubt will kill faith and unforgiveness will ultimately just crush a prayer life, but it will also cause you to stop receiving God's grace so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. The challenge is that we would be people who would forgive as we have been forgiven. The reality is when we are withholding forgiveness from people, we are not entering into and receiving the grace, the forgiveness that God has for us. We block that because our hearts become hard. I don't know how else to just say it as simple as this. Just be a forgiving person. Because the alternative, you don't want the alternative. If you've been down that road of bitterness and anger and hate, you can't live there. Why? It's a miserable existence. I'm telling you that firsthand. Be a person who is a forgiving, gracious person. And the only way that you get that is when you receive the grace and compassion, mercy that God has for you. The life that is driven by faith in God, it's not a building. Jesus is calling us away from this idea that it's about this space is our focal point. It's faith in Jesus, faith in God. The life is driven by grace, this life that Jesus is calling us to. A life of prayer and a life of forgiveness. Now, you can probably imagine the religious leaders were like, this is not good for us. If people start paying attention to Jesus, our shop is going to be closed up. We won't have a job anymore. And so you can understand from the leader's perspective why they rejected Jesus' message. Remember, this is a tough message. The temple is going to be destroyed. It's not going to be cleansed. It's going to be destroyed. And so the, um, the elders, teachers, religious leaders come to Jesus with this question. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? It's another way of saying, Jesus, who are you to call us out on this? Who are you to challenge us in the way we live our life? If you've never wrestled with that question, you should. Because when you recognize the authority that Jesus has, oh, I get it, that's why, and submit and surrender to that. And so Jesus, I love when Jesus answers questions with questions. It's brilliant technique. If you're ever stumped and someone asks you a question, just shoot them back another question. They're like, wow, that was deep. That was good. This is what Jesus does. What authority do you have? Let me ask you a question, Jesus says. So Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Not many, one. And here's his question. I love this question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. I can only, I would have loved to seen their faces like, this is not going to go well for us. Now, it might seem like an odd question. Like, Jesus, of all the questions you want to stump them on, like, why does it matter where John's baptism is from? They've got two options. They can say it's from heaven, or they can say it's from men. This is the problem. If they say it's from heaven, Jesus will look at them and say, then why didn't you believe? If it was from heaven, why didn't you receive? If it was from heaven, then have you placed yourself now in authority over what you will receive, accept, or reject is from heaven? So that option will not work for them. Ah, but the second option won't work for them either. The people loved John the Baptist. 
He was a crazy dude living in the desert, screaming at the top of his lungs, but people went to him in droves, and they repented, and they believed. The people saw John as a prophet. Now, if they come back and say, no, he was just from men, the people would have had a field day on the religious leaders. How dare you call a prophet from God someone who is just a man-made, self-appointed guy? So they debate amongst themselves, what are we supposed to do? And so in their collective wisdom, in their collective genius, they come back and they say, we don't know. So not only did they not even know how to answer the question, but now they've just made themselves look incredibly dense. Jesus' question, from heaven or from man, they have no clue how to even recognize something that is from heaven. I thought your job was the spiritual elder, teacher, religious leader. Are you telling me that you don't know, that you don't even know how to recognize what's from God and what's not from God? So now they just look equally ridiculous. And so Jesus says, by my divine authority, I will not answer you your question. This is a great picture of the divinity of Jesus here. The fact that he refuses to answer their hard-hearted question is a great picture of Jesus issuing his divine authority and say, I don't have to answer to you. Ultimately, what has is, is happened here, they failed to recognize the authority that Jesus had. They failed to recognize the authority that had been given to Jesus by God. And when you fail to recognize the authority that is in Jesus, you know what you're going to do? You'll reject him. Or you'll just pick and choose what you like about Jesus and what you don't like about Jesus. I don't like that he picks on trees. I'll ignore that part. I like that he says, you know, uh, blessed are you. I'll pick that part. If you fail to recognize Jesus Christ as an authority, not a authority, but the authority. If he is not the authority in your life, you will reject him. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus goes on to share a story, a very simple parable that is used as a way to communicate against the religious leaders. He talks about, he tells a parable of, of a man who built a vineyard. And in time, that vineyard came to harvest. And so the owner of the vineyard came, and he sent people to go get the harvest. But the workers in that vineyard killed him, rejected them. And God, uh, the owner of the vineyard, says this. This is now in um, um, uh, verse uh, 7. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Because the owner said, maybe if I send my son, maybe they'll treat him with respect. Maybe they'll listen to him because he's my son. But they said, because he's the heir, come, let us kill him, and an inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This was the response. Again, this is about the authority of Jesus. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken a parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him alone and went away. A lot of text that we cover tonight. It's hard to even know how to finish because so much has been covered. What Jesus has done for three years is he has modeled, he has shown how we are to live our lives. And he comes into the temple and says, it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be about appearances. It's supposed to be about a life driven by faith, fueled by God's grace. Fruit being born in forgiveness. Fruit being born in prayer. We're supposed to live a life, not just in here, 
where we come and sing and listen and, and go home, but live what we are coming to understand in Scripture out there. I've asked you some pointed questions tonight. And I trust in that some of those questions God has been speaking to you about how you need to respond to him. If you're the person who's just all about appearances, confess that, repent of it, and say, God created me a faith I've never seen. If you're a person who's never submitted yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ, you've utterly just rejected him then let tonight be the night you say, Jesus, I submit to you as the the authority, not one of the authorities or not a authority, but the authority in my life. Make me the man or the woman you've called me to be. Father God, I pray that uh, tonight there would be a lot of confession. There would be a lot of repentance. God, tonight I pray that as there would be confessions being made about how we ultimately are living our lives out of this place. God, as there's decisions to repent and literally turn the direction of our lives, heart, mind, soul, all of who we are, towards following you, Jesus, wholeheartedly. God, that you would just please overwhelm us with your grace. It is only by grace, Jesus, that we can even have a relationship with you. I am so thankful that a relationship with you, Jesus, is not based on being religious and following a bunch of rules. Lord Jesus, tonight, if there's anyone in here that is missing a relationship with you, Jesus, based on grace through faith, that that decision would get made tonight to enter and begin a relationship with you. God, for those of us who have been walking in relationship with you for a long time, but we're starting to realize it's just a bunch of leaves, not much fruit. I pray that we would repent of just keeping up appearances and that you would begin to bear within us Jesus, I thank you that you love each and every single person in this room to speak in ways that we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. Jesus, as we would continue in worship, we worship you because you are worthy of worship. We pray that in Jesus' name. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.